Conspiracy Land listeners, uh, we thought we'd offer you, you know, one more bonus episode that provides a little background on how we made this podcast, uh, what it was like to visit Cuba in the year 2022, and uh, also uh, some takeaways about what to make of everything we found. And uh, I'll be joined here by my producer, Mark Seaman. Mark. Good to see you again through Zoom. Um, and uh, longtime uh, Cuba watcher, journalist Patrick Symes. Uh, Patrick, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. So, Mark, let's talk a little about our trip to Cuba, because as I mentioned in uh, episode one of Conspiracy Land, it was dramatically different than when I'd last been there uh, seven years ago. Almost a night and day experience when I was there in 2015. You know, it was a heady time. Obama had normalized relations. Uh, the Cubans were welcoming Americans uh, to the island. And um, things seemed to be thriving. But man, during our trip, it was clear the Cubans are suffering. The economy is in really horrible shape, uh, shortages of food and medicine. And one thing that really struck out to me is you can't use credit card, American credit cards in Cuba these days. I mean, we have this economic embargo and there's just no way to use credit cards. So you're using cash. You can't use American dollars. So you got to convert them to pesos. The pesos are worth four pennies to the dollar, which means going out to dinner, you know, you're taking these huge stacks of pesos, you know, lining them up. And I mean, it, you know, it's like you were, it's like images of Weimar Republic in the 1920s, right? Yeah, it felt like the Monopoly guy for a second, you know, or at least the banker, you know, is yeah. just doling out these stacks of paper. That, that was pretty fascinating. And, uh, you know, just thinking about images of you and me in the kitchen table of where we were staying, just, you know, separating these mounds, <laughs> mounds of, of money, the whole money system and the black market and, you know, what we could do where and convert what, where very fascinating. And I had never been to Cuba before. So this, this was my first experience. So I'd only seen postcards. I'd only seen the nice photos my friends had taken back in 2016 or whenever they went and uh, it was pretty eye-opening the second, you know, we landed and got there that this was going to be a different experience. And, you know, Mike, I don't know about you, but, you know, I had to travel with all this gear, right? All this recording gear. And when I was packing, I was like, you know what? I'm going here with one t-shirt, one pair of pants, and I'm going to keep all this gear on me because last thing I need to do is separate this gear from me going into a place where I'm no longer in control whatsoever. And that first experience going through security on the other side was rough right out of the gate. They gave you a hard time. Gave me a hard time. You know, my Spanish is okay. And so there was a lot of miscommunication going on explaining what a microphone stand is, where a cable plugs in. And as far as I know, these people think I'm building a bomb, right? So I don't think it's a bomb. I think they, they thought it was electronic equipment to sort of, you know, 
uh, send subversive messages to Cuban dissidents. Uh, to, <laughs> Very well know, could have oppose been, right? the regime. I think that's what they were worried about, or that's what they imagined in their minds. And you had even more trouble getting out with all that equipment. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, we could talk about it at the end if you want. But uh, it foreshadowed sort of what I was in for from my perspective is just someone lugging around stuff that uh, probably wasn't supposed to be there or if they're just unaware of it, not a good idea to be carrying around. Once we got in that first taxi, if you want to call it that, you know, we got in and just every the strong smell of gasoline, seeing these cars filled with empty milk jugs that had kind of had gasoline in them and then them explaining to us, yeah, you just don't know when you're going to get gas again. And the money situation was, was, you know, turned out to be pretty harrowing because I think we each took stacks of cash, American dollars, right? We had booked an Airbnb before we arrived. It turned out to be not optimal for what we needed. So we transferred uh, to the Nacional Hotel, which you can't book from the U.S. That's the sort of grand hotel in Havana. That's, you know, the place to stay. So we had to like lay down, um, you know, tens of thousands of pesos, which we (laughs) bought on the black market to pay for the rooms, leaving us with very little money left to make it out, right? And if you remember the last night we were there, we're leaving the next morning, we had to get a COVID test to get back into the country. I forgot all about that, Mike. Yeah, and 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 (laughs) here's the thing, we had no money left. If we had tested positive in that COVID test, which I, I think we were both freaking out about, what were we going to do? <laughs> you know, we had no money. We would have had no place to stay. We would have tried to get in touch with Yahoo and figure out a way they could get us something. But I imagine myself becoming a homeless person in Havana. It's funny. I, I actually forgot all about that, Mike. And I don't get, I'm not one to get nervous. I'm super easygoing and chill, even in rough situations. But I remember, and you remember this well, when we went and got our COVID test, you're like, okay, I'm going to go you know, rest and read or something. I was like, nope, I'm waiting outside this door for my test results. Because <laughs> if, if we are positive and we're screwed here, I'm already we freaking out we're about what's screwed. <laughs> like we're royalty yeah. screwed. Just one more point on how we had run out of money. We had just enough to pay for the cab to make it to the airport the next morning. And no sooner do we get to the airport that the news breaks that there's been an explosion in one of the leading hotels in Cuba, right? And, you know, the first thought is, oh, my God, it's a terrorist attack. Cuban act, you know, you activists, anti-regime activists are like striking back at the government. It's would be the biggest story in Cuba in years. And all I'm thinking is, what are we going to do? We've got no money. We couldn't even make it back into the city from the airport. Luckily, uh, it was a gas explosion and there was no signs of terrorism. Luckily, unluckily, right? I mean, obviously, there was still a gas explosion. Well, yeah, no, I know. It's unfortunate for the hotel and the people in it. And and Mike, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but we we had separate flights back, right? I had an earlier flight than you. And so I had to get up really early in the morning and to your point about it was down to the peso of how we were going to get back, right? You know, we're going to have to negotiate the cab rate. 
And I'm already on the way to the airport when this happens. Like I'm almost at the airport and I get a text from you. Hey, did you see this? And it was like, you had sent me something from Twitter of footage of the explosion. And it was just, all I could think is, oh my God, I'm, I'm trying to get out of the country. I've got all this electronic equipment again. Here we go again. This is just going to add up to total disaster. And sure enough, when I get to the station agent or the gate agent, you know, that lets you through and stamps your passport and stuff, they shuffled me around to three different stations. And I was like, what's going on? And they were obviously aware of my name or whatever. And someone find a police officer, somebody comes over and grabs me and says, come through here. And they they pass me through the gate. They take my all everything I'm carrying, all my bags. They take my passport, which has my visa to be there in Cuba in the first place in it. And they go, go stand over here by this wall. Then someone else comes over to me, says, you got to walk through these x-ray machines. There were like two or three different ones. Then they said, we need you to go in this interrogation room, take your clothes off. And so I go in this room like, oh, okay. Maybe they think I have something strapped on me, you know, whatever, fine. And I strip down to just my underwear. And then they say, you could put some of your clothes back on. And then I sat in this interrogation room all by myself for 45 minutes. And all I could think of hotel explosion, American trying to get out of airports <laughs> with a lot of electronic equipment. Yes. Right? With a lot of electronic yeah. equipment. I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> and sure enough, I, they pull, they finally pull me out two more x-ray machines. And I had to sit with three police officers and dismantle every single thing. I had my possession, pull it out, open it up, all that good stuff. And then they go, a, a fourth officer comes over and goes, where's your visa? And I was like, Oh my God, my visa. Oh my God, my visa. This is it. I'm done. I, I got had no cards left to play. And I had my passport. They had given me back, but not the visa. And I was like, somebody took it. Some lady took, you know, and they're not <laughs> yeah. speaking English. And I'm trying to finagle some bad Spanish. And, you know, long story short, they take everything out. And the lady that pulled out all my stuff was so fed up with dealing with this. She just looks at me and goes, you pack and just walks off. And so I have to build all my, I barely made my flight. I had like two minutes to spare. And of course, everybody getting on the plane is looking at me like, Holy shit, this guy's getting on our plane? I don't want to sit next to this guy. <laughs> so Mark would have been the, the next Alan Gross, right? Uh, he was an American contractor who brought electronic equipment into Cuba and they locked him up for years. And, and he got traded for some of yeah, the for, Cuban Five, right? Or whatever. Yeah, the leader of the Cuban Five, Gerardo Hernandez, who we met with in, uh, in Havana. Incredible story. Mike and Mark, you guys are reminding me of all the great memories I have of reporting in Cuba. It's so strange and striking and different, isn't it? It's hard. You've had you've been there many times, right, Patrick? I have been there, I think, 25 times over 30 wow. years. And I never tire of this. It, it's hard to get there. It's hard to process. There's difficulties. The Airbnb doesn't work out. The hotel only takes cash. You wander around with a thousand bucks in your pocket and vulnerable, and it's nothing is supposed to be the way it is back home. It's very unusual and always stimulating. And we should point out this is like maybe the only country in the world outside of maybe, you know, North Korea and Iran, I guess, where an American encounters something like this. We have this economic embargo. You can't use credit cards to pay for anything. And it's a country that's closest. It's the island country that's closest to our borders. And uh, it's as distant as it can possibly be. Yet so 
intertwined with American history. The buildings look American. The Cold War made Cuba a huge player. So we are very cut off from them, yet so similar to them in some ways. You see everybody, what was that old car? It's probably an American old car, right? So they they live in our shadow, uh, but it's all so, so strange to see. Yeah, it's a long shadow. That's, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 year shadow. I mean, there were a couple of restaurants that Mike and I went to and I remember Mikey said, oh, I'll have the chicken. And they were just like, we don't have any chicken. (laughs) And they just couldn't get it. You know, it just wasn't at the restaurant. It was (laughs) stuff was missing. You could tell. I think we had asked for like, can I have a fork? You know, they're just things were (laughs) out of whack. You know, it just, I felt if you just, again, you just felt so bad for everyone. The Cuban people were trying really hard. Everybody we encountered just in everyday life, whether it's on the street or at the restaurant or wherever, they were all so nice. They were all so great. They were all so willing to talk and just friendly, but you could see the bags under their eyes of just, how much more can we take? They are they are suffering, and you know, tens of thousands, over a hundred thousand, you know, are coming to the U.S. border now, leaving Cuba. You know, as I mentioned in the podcast, this is larger uh, than the Mariel boatlift when Fidel Castro unleashed Cubans uh, on the United States. Uh, what, which embassy, Mike? Did we see the caution tape around? Remember, we were driving. I think down it was the, street. the Panamanian. Right. Yeah, and they were just like, don't come here. <laughs> like, don't come here and try to get out of here. It's just, it was pretty crazy. Patrick, what do you make of, I mean, one of the things we reported on in this uh, podcast is the sort of complete reversal of Obama's opening to Cuba, the normalization of relations with Cuba, which was really a hallmark of, you know, the Obama foreign policy, at least in the Western Hemisphere. Um, And it was viewed as a historic moment, an exciting moment. And um, to have it all just sort of roll back, starting with the reports of Havana syndrome, which, you know, sets off this chain of events that leads to where we are today. What was your, what is your take on on that, Patrick? I guess, Mike, I have contradictory feelings about it because in some ways it was, a you know, yes, a massive reversal. And I think, you know, as always, the Trump administration, their first instinct was anything that Obama is for, we're going to undo it loudly and immediately and call it idiotic. So this was a Rex Tillerson special. He wanted to have a reason to screw down on Cuba, probably for U.S. domestic reasons. So this was a big change. But I also feel like it's a reversion to normal now. Look at even the Biden administration isn't tackling these going back to the Obama rules. They just not not in the least. I mean, you know, not inviting Cuba to the summit of the Americas. That was clearly a pointed rebuke. Um, but this is the norm historically. Democrats and Republicans pursued this policy of isolation for decades. So in that sense, uh, the Trump administration was not revolutionary. It was Obama who was. And we're back to the normal now. And I agree with you. It's a little striking and, and uh, disturbing to see Biden not do something about this. Now, I mean, you know, two points. One is I thought one of the real eye-opening interviews we did in this uh, this series was with uh, Ben Rhodes, who has some really stinging remarks to make about Biden's continuing Trump's policies towards Cuba. You know, he had negotiated, he was Obama's deputy national security advisor, and he had negotiated the opening 
to Cuba and then to have everything he worked on completely thrown out the window. It was clearly quite upsetting to him. But at the same time, we also interviewed that Cuban human rights activist talking about the protests last July, July of 2021, and the you know, truly harsh crackdown that the Cubans initiated on the people who were demonstrating, you know, for greater freedom and, you know, uh, improvements in the economy. You know, I think the Biden people have sort of cited that. And you can hear that in the interview we do with uh, Brian Nichols, the Assistant Secretary of State, that that was a moment for them to, you know, to remind the world that this remains a communist country that does not tolerate dissent. Well, it's it's uh, it's completely accurate. And I was reporting in Havana for Yahoo News a couple of years ago, right? When Obama left, almost immediately, just days later, there were pro-democracy demonstrations in the streets. And I saw the tail end of one and ran it down. Severe repression, you know, people being manhandled, stuffed into police cars and dragged away within seconds just for, you know, Obama had given a speech in Havana advocating for human rights and they were holding up handmade signs with quotes from that speech. So this is a dictatorship and it will do anything to preserve its system, including strangle the economy. Uh, I'm a little less emotional about it than Ben Rhodes, because, you know, he put himself on the line but yeah. uh, and feels betrayed that his word wasn't good enough. But most deals with Cuba over the years have gone nowhere. And the Cubans are not honest players in this as well. They'll take what they can get from the United States and then they'll go mass arrest people. They're not moderating. They're not interested in that. They need to sustain their system and they will always choose themselves over the mass of Cuban people. And that's why you see this mass exodus right now. All that said, the Havana syndrome ailments, and, you know, they are real. I mean, people uh, have gotten sick. They have suffered cognitive declines and in some cases brain injuries. But as we point out, you know, there's just zero evidence that this is the result of any kind of you know, targeted attacks by a hostile power. And it was originally, you know, alleged that it was the Cubans who were doing this. That's what Tillerson said. That's what Trump said. Uh, that became the excuse to pull our diplomats out of the embassy. Then it became the Russians were doing it. And of course, you know, for good, you know, we are inclined to believe the worst about the Russians for good reason. They poison dissidents and defectors. Uh, they interfere in elections, including ours. Uh, they invade neighboring countries. Uh, so they do a lot of bad things. So the idea that the Russians might be behind this was a very appealing notion, and it led to endless news stories by, you know, credible news organizations. But at the end of the day, when you, you know, realize that there was just no evidence to back that up, no microwave weapon ever discovered, you know, nobody ever zapping U.S. officials ever discovered. With our vast intelligence apparatus, we've picked up nothing that indicates the Russians were planning this major campaign to attack U.S. diplomats all over the world. And randomly, by the way, that's the other thing. Like, you know, Karen Coates, who we interview in the first episode, She's an HR person in the embassy. Why would she have been whacked? What was the what was in it for either the Cubans, the Russians, or whoever to go after her? It kind of didn't make any sense. 
I agree. The Cubans, I think, would be the last to attempt this. Their hostility to the United States is opposed. They're largely seeking closer contact with the United States, more engagement. They, they threaten and scream and jump up and down for domestic consumption to have an enemy, but they need improved relations with the United States, investment, tourism, money, et cetera. So they don't have the incentive to do it. Of course, as you point out, there's a lot of history here, both of Cold War paranoia about microwave weapons all over the place. And then the symptoms start showing up in embassies in China. Even, you know, most recently in Vienna, this is still going on. You have two dozen U.S. government employees in Vienna now reported to have these syndromes, you know, and these conditions and possible illnesses. So I do believe, as you emphasize, these are real illnesses. This is real damage. This is real pain and suffering. There's no malingering here. This is about other conditions and symptoms and illnesses that got labeled with that word Havana and put in a box. And I have never seen evidence. I just think no matter how much you look, there is no evidence that that was caused by anybody or is anything other than a collection of other causes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what the CIA task force has found so far. You know, these alternative explanations that they've uncovered, you know. You know, Michael, it's natural also to have the fear about the Cold War stuff. There really were conspiracies all over the place in Cuba against U.S. Yeah. diplomats. I knew a diplomat who was stationed in Havana. They would come home and the furniture in their apartment had been rearranged. And that was on purpose. They wanted us to know we are watching you. And by the way, that happened all the time in uh, Moscow as well. I mean, um, uh, people serving in, in, in Russia and journalists uh, serving in Russia had that happen. You know, they'd go into their apartments and find things. And of course, the Cuban intelligence services are really the last Soviet model intelligence services. They were trained in East Germany. They explicitly took that whole model of how it was organized in East Germany to Cuba and still operate that way today. The same unit designations, the same books and rules about how you know things are supposed to be organized in the days of the Warsaw Pact. Uh, so other than maybe Russia, they are the last inheritors of the style of conspiracy thinking and and intelligence operations. Well, I have to say, you know, uh, the, the second episode, The Mystery of the Moscow Signal is, you know, in some ways uh, had the most fun putting that together because, you know, I love Cold War history and um, there's clearly a direct through line from the U.S. concerns about the, uh, the Moscow Signal and uh, to Havana syndrome, you know, the earlier Cold War history shaped how U.S. officials thought about and responded to the reports of Havana syndrome. And I got to say, you know, Cuba is, you know, the last bastion in, of the Cold War, uh, our, our relations with Cuba is. So um, for anybody who's steeped in Cold War history, the story of U.S.-Cuba relations is a huge chapter in that history and a continuing chapter. And I hope we've um, made at least a modest contribution to that history. Patrick and Mark, thanks for joining us. And uh, thank you all Conspiracyland listeners who've been listening to The Strange Story of Havana Syndrome.